0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Over the past decade or so, we've learned a great deal about the human genome, and this has allowed us to determine which medical conditions our patients are at increased risk of developing, and also which medications may be best suited for their medical problems. In addition to the genetic tests we use in our clinical practice direct to consumer home genetic testing has really increased in popularity. What information is available with these tests is the information they provide accurate and how do they differ from the genetic tests we order. We'll be discussing home genetic testing and answer these questions in today's podcast our guest is Dr Matthew Ferber. A clinical molecular geneticist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Matt, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Daryl, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited and could talk about
1: home genetic testing for hours on end. So that's we'll try good to... news. <laughs> <laughs> We're not good. There'll be no no shortness of topics for us to cover here today.
0: All right. Well, let's start by asking you. This topic has just blossomed in the last decade or so. What led to this? Can you go over just a little bit about the history of genetic testing?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. I'll start off with a a really global discussion on genetic testing. And then I think I'll spend just a minute or two on your question regarding and comment regarding the explosion recently. It might surprise a lot of the listeners to understand that genetic testing has been around since the 1950s. Back in those days, we called it cytogenetics. And so we were really looking at very large structural changes that were visible under a light microscope, looking at mitotic DNA and looking at those condensed chromosomes and doing things like counting the number of chromosomes that we could see under a microscope, or looking for gross anomalies within the banding patterns of those chromosomes. And so when people are thinking about genetic testing, they don't usually dig that far back, but indeed that type of testing has been available since the fifties. I would say around the eighties, we started to utilize some of what we would consider more modern, molecular biological methodologies to start diagnosing folks with rare inherited disorders like cystic fibrosis or Duchenne muscular dystrophy or factor V Leiden is another one where you could use some fairly straightforward methodologies to address a single clinical question being asked, but it was indeed limited. Throughout the 90s, our capabilities continued to grow. And in the early 2000s, we can recall, right, the landmark science paper describing the completion of. Sequencing the entire human genome. That was around 2003. And I believe at that point, you know, the thought was that all genetic conditions would immediately be solvable because we've got the blueprint handy within our grasp. And it's a little bit more challenging than that. But certainly that landmark discovery really started to accelerate the way that we utilize genetic tests. Around 2010, next-generation DNA sequencing became widespread. It had already been used in the research world, but in the clinical world, it started to become more available. And This really transitioned us from looking at defects in a single gene to looking at potential defects in a whole panel of genes that could be responsible for the same or similar phenotypes. And that's where we are today then. We're now looking at rather than a single variant in a single gene at a time, now we often will order large panels of genes powered by this incredible next generation DNA sequencing technology, allowing us to do far more for even less money than what we had done previously.
0: Well, there's some terms that I'd like you to kind of define because they're out there and they're a little bit confusing, at least to me, genetics, genomic. DNA testing, do they all mean the same thing?
1: They can. That's a really good point. So when I'm sitting at a cocktail party talking with my friends, I can often slip into using them interchangeably. But when I come to work and I'm talking with other professionals, we really need to be careful because they do mean different things. When I talk about genetic testing, I generally am talking about that single disease, single gene kind of testing, where we're really narrowly focused in on a target. We already have a very high suspicion of what we want to go after, and we'll use very narrow techniques or methodologies to try and find a variant in that gene. When I start talking about genomic testing, To me, genomic testing is like the whole enchilada. Let's blow it up. Let's really look more broadly. And that's where we would bring out terms like exome sequencing, uh, whole genome sequencing, and the like. And then DNA testing, that's a pretty vanilla term. That can be a blanket term for both of those two concepts that I just talked about, from the very tiny and specific to the very large and broad.
0: All right. Well, there's, you know, there's a variety of companies out there who are uh, selling these genetic tests for consumers. How accurate are they? Can our patients trust these results?
1: The answer is, it depends. The truth is that many of these laboratories have what it takes to run a laboratory that is capable of returning results to a participant's Review. Ultimately, some of these things may even end up in a medical record. So, there are a lot of rules and regulations that need to be adhered to when working within this space. The flip side is there are also a lot of opportunists out there, and they understand that there is a lot of buzz around DNA testing, and there's a lot of misinformation out there about what DNA testing can and cannot do. And so, at the end of the day, Understanding that there is this continuum, I would always continue to emphasize that individuals use a reliable source. If you've never heard of the company before, I'd be very wary before I would move forward with engaging in their experience. On the other hand, if you're aware of the company and you know that this is something that thousands of, of folks have participated in, tens, hundreds, even millions of participants for some of these companies, those are probably the better companies to stick with.
0: So are these laboratories under any kind of standards? Is there any like the equivalent of an FDA approving a company that makes medications?
1: Another uh, wonderful question. I think you've really done your homework here. You probably answer these questions as well, if not better than I can. But these laboratories are accredited, the good ones are accredited by the College of American Pathologists, which helped to make sure that the CLIA, the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Act of 1988, and there have been updates since then, make sure that those mandates are well adhered to. Some laboratories also are pursuing FDA approval. So very true that from all different levels, there are regulatory components that need to be adhered to for these reputable businesses. Others will not have that accreditation. It's like that good housekeeping seal of approval, Mm -hmm. if you will. And if they don't have CLIA, CAP, or FDA, might be well advised to stay away.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, sometimes when we see patients and we detect a strong familial tendency for some maybe unusual illness, uh, we will order clinical genomic testing. Are these the same tests that they can get as consumers?
1: They are different, highly similar, but different. In my experience, the tests that we order as part of our routine clinical care are what I would consider to be an environment where we leave no stone unturned. We will often use multiple methodologies to make sure that the target regions of the genome are covered 100%. And that can be time and expensive. And we just wanna make sure that we have reduced the likelihood that anything was missed to the smallest reasonable fraction as possible. In the direct-to-consumer space, there's a lot more competition to drive towards fast, inexpensive, and ease of use. And those aren't bad things, they're just different. And so if we compare the two, I like to think of direct-to-consumer testing as a good outlet for early education, for population screening when you don't have any other type of family history and other applications like that. Whereas the flip side of the takes longer, costs more, far more detailed, that's really, The sweet spot of our genetics professional or our our physician professionals who are comfortable ordering genetic tests to order that more comprehensive kind of test to make sure that no stone has been left unturned.
0: I think another difference that I notice is these patients come in with their results and there may be some written explanation, but when we order these tests as a clinical exam. They come with a genetic counselor to uh, go over things with the patient. I find that extremely valuable for the patient.
1: Yeah, the genetic counselors would love to hear that too. And they do an incredible job and they should almost be a requirement for mm-hmm. any genetic test regardless of its direct to consumer or not and i know that for a couple of the direct to consumer genetic testing companies they actually do offer some style of genetic counseling that sometimes can be pretest Mostly it's post-test result and post-test result only by request. But having that genetic counselor interaction is as valuable or more valuable than the test itself often. And there can be a lot gleaned in those conversations from both negative and positive results. Mm -hmm. So it's not mandatory, but I would definitely advise a genetic consultation post-test to really understand what it is that you got, what it is that you might not have obtained. So let's just play out a little scenario here. I went and had XYZ direct-to-consumer testing, and they didn't find anything. I don't have an elevated risk for hereditary breast cancer. Well, that's one interpretation. But if you dig a little bit deeper, with the help of a genetic counselor, they may be able to inform you that oh, the methods that they used only pick up 70% of the known mutations involved in causing hereditary breast cancer. That's different than the leave no stone unturned approach that you and I talked about just earlier. And that's probably only going to be elucidated through a conversation with a real professional versus reading some of the fine print in some of the direct-to-consumer testing information so those types of scenarios i think are likely and will really be helped by an interaction with a genetic counselor
0: Mm -hmm. well matt i've been seeing patients for a little over 40 years and before genetic testing was really available to us we were doing our best in terms of picking up conditions that were related to their genetics but we called it the family history Mm-hmm. Um, so even today, we still take a family history and if we don't really detect any conditions that tend to run in the patient's family, do they get any benefit out of doing a genetic testing?
1: Absolutely. Before I answer that question, though, you mentioned something that I'm really excited and passionate about. I think you know taking that family history is critical and I would love for this is free opportunity to invent. Right. It'd be great if there was a source where people could direct a consumer fill in an electronic pedigree or an electronic family history so that by the time they come to the clinic, we've got something that's a little bit more robust that can be reviewed because often, like you said, a lot can be revealed within those histories even before testing begins. Now, to answer your question, here's the downside of a family history, whether it was collected by the individual at home or collected within the clinic under the surveillance of a healthcare provider. Number one, folks can often misremember the details of even their own family history. So as you're going through that collection, it's often important to maybe ask the same question in a couple of different ways to make sure that things are jiving and gelling around the data. The other thing is a lot of people, whether or not they know their family history, will want to be helpful to their physician. They wanna develop that strong, helpful relationship with their physician. And sometimes things are communicated that just aren't accurate and it's unintentional. And so they can often be a little bit incorrect. The other thing to think about is, there may not be a family history to have because maybe your patient was adopted they likely know that, but they may not know that. And so the family history information that you're collecting, again, may be a red herring. And then finally, this happens, and we're all professionals here, but there's a strong degree of false paternity as well. And so an individual's idea of their family history may not always be their actual genetic composition. And so there still may be a gap there. And so If you're sitting in the clinic and you are aware of certain types of conditions like hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, hereditary colorectal cancer, and this patient is at a relatively young age of onset, but the family history just doesn't make sense, I would still highly consider genetic testing. And even beyond that, I forgot to mention, even beyond that, a lot of these disorders have a certain new mutation rate that occurs in the background of Individuals' genomic DNA as we continue to evolve as a species. So, not all of these variants are going to be passed down through the family for hundreds of years. So, you look at the family history and it just makes sense because there's that smoking gun. Some of these individuals are the first generation within their family that will have this disease. And now, because it will impact their germline, will be at risk of passing it on to their offspring.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. If we have a patient who has genetic testing, and let's say they test positive or they have a high risk of having a genetic diabetes, ovarian cancer, dementia, I would think insurance companies would be very interested to have that information. Uh, Is that information available to them, and do these findings on genetic tests affect our patients' health insurance costs?
1: these are really good questions as well. It's probably one of the biggest concerns that we hear about as it relates to genetic testing. And the short answer is no, they don't have access to this information. The long answer is it can depend. We in the United States benefit from the Genomics Information Non-Disclosure Act or GINA. This really prohibits any potential employer or your health insurance provider from discriminating you against any pre existing genetic condition that you may know about. Now, the longer answer will also include a description and discussion about the difference between health insurance and life insurance. Mm-hmm. Life insurance can, if they can find the information, because again, we aren't obligated or allow people to get into others' medical records, right? We're the Mayo Clinic. We've got all the these firewalls and protection. People just can't get this information. But if you go to sign up for life insurance and they ask you, have you ever had genetic testing, you need to make a decision and say, am I going to be truthful or am I going to you know, falsify my information? And if you choose to be truthful, then you have to disclose that information. And they can at that time either refuse to allow you for that portion of life insurance or they may increase your premium. Mm -hmm. There's one other really important small caveat. And I think that is that GINA only protects individuals who are employed by medium to large companies. So if you work for a small private company, maybe less than 50 employees, or it's like a mom and pop kind of place, a small startup company, family business there can be some challenges in there as well but if you're working for a larger employer like the mayo clinic or like a 500 employee plus kind of corporate environment then the gina law does kick in
0: right i'm going to finish up with one question that it's more just on your opinion because i deal with this as as a geriatrician i have my patients want to know if there's a genetic tendency for them to develop dementia or alzheimer's Mm. disease and i discourage them from getting those tests because i don't know what to tell them if their test comes back showing they have an increased risk what should we do when patients want to know things like that
1: yeah this one is really really hard it's a really hard question because how a particular patient intends to use and or benefit or suffer from understanding their predisposition when there is no treatment is highly variable, extremely personal and complicated. Mm -hmm. I think in those cases, it's very important to make sure that they go through thorough pre-test counseling so that they can have a very meaningful discussion with a genetic counselor about all of the things, Daryl, that you just mentioned. Whether or not this test comes back positive or negative, we aren't going to be able to provide you with a medication. Whether or not this test comes back positive or negative, we're probably not going to be able to alter your ultimate risk for developing this disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And only then when they fully understand what they're about to embark on, what the likely results or possible results are going to be, and then what can or can't be done after that, um, I think is very important. And if it turns out to be the type of person, you can set up these different personas. There's kind of the active explorer, and they're very engaged and very curious and very accustomed to working in ambiguous environments. There I might say, yeah, I could see. You know, If you know, then you can plan. If it's more of the, I'm very worried, I'm very concerned, then I think That person will ultimately have to make their own decision, but they should be very aware of Mm -hmm. the, we're not going to be able to treat you any differently. And is that going to make you feel better or worse and make a decision from that? So I guess I would just summarize by saying, it's hard for me to tell someone don't do this test or yes, do this test. I think what is easier to say is you should have a genetic consultation and really work through all of the different scenarios and options, and then make an informed decision for what's best for you.
0: Yeah, because I, I see that much different than a genetic test that says a patient's at increased risk for coronary disease mm-hmm. or ovarian cancer, because we can be more aggressive about treating that patient's risk factors for coronary disease, maybe bring their lipids much lower than usual or keep their blood pressure down, uh, encourage them to exercise and you know lose weight, or ovarian cancer, maybe we'd want to do periodic pelvic ultrasounds. But boy, with Alzheimer's disease, we don't have good treatment, and I just find it increases the anxiety by having some patient know that they're increased risk of developing it. Yeah, it is. It's very tough. Well, Matt, let's finish up by asking you to summarize with maybe two or three key points about uh, home genetic testing.
1: I've been waiting for this question, so <laughs> I'm just, I'll tell a little. When I first started moving towards clinical molecular genetics, I was a fellow in the lab in 2003 became a lab director in 2005. And I'll just admit, I was a genetic snob back then. And the thought that anybody should have a genetic test outside of the safe environment of the medical profession, to me, was just, you know, it's just, it was not the right direction for society and for the the field to move. As time has gone on and we really saw that explosion of genetic information around that 2010 period of time with next generation sequencing, really bringing down the cost of sequencing and opening up the aperture of the types of genes and things that we could look at, I really shifted in my mentality and really started to say, If there are high-quality, low-cost options for people to get engaged with genetic testing, so they're asking the right questions, they're thinking about the right things before they have a crisis situation in their family, that to me is a net benefit. And so even at the highest level, if the direct-to-consumer genetic testing application you're using tells you how much Neanderthal you have in your heritage, to me, that's a good conversation for people to start having. It's an interesting conversation. It means nothing about your health or your longevity or anything like that, but it's getting them accustomed to the vernacular. And it can get confusing really quick. I'd rather have them engage then and learn early than when they're 48 years old presenting with advanced colorectal cancer, only to find out that mom or dad had a predisposition. Oh, and now, by the way, your your three or four children also have a 50% likelihood of also inheriting this variant. So I see it as fun, I see it as educational, and I think in some rare cases, it's going to find important stuff that can actually help you prevent disease. So my modern interpretation is, if you can find a high-quality provider, go for it. Go for it, and we're going to see a lot of this coming into the clinic. So as we speak to our provider audience, we need to work together to make sure that our providers are comfortable with this information and also ready to understand when the report comes in, was this one of the good ones? or should I be a little bit more skeptical about, you know, the piece of paper that's being foisted upon me to kind of review and give my two cents on.
0: Well, we've been discussing home genetic testing with Dr. Matthew Ferber, a clinical molecular geneticist from the Mayo Clinic. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. This was a really fun discussion.
1: I really appreciate it. I could go for another hour or two, but uh, we'll, we'll save that for the long format.
0: All right. We'll have you back.